as we're working through the Gospel of John, we come to the end of chapter 6. We're going to make the last couple of paragraphs there. Um, of course, I told you John chapter 6 is the longest chapter in the Gospel of John. And so we spent, I think, six weeks looking at this. Of course, we took last week off, so I'll review for you a little bit. I had one of those weeks, you know how you come back from vacation and you can't get rolling? Yep. That was me. Uh, so we'll work, uh, we'll work through this. But let me, let me just through, let's kind of walk through uh, John 6 real quickly and just kind of see what, where we're, what all has been building up to, to this moment here we're at, where we're at the end of this chapter. Uh, the, the chapter started with Jesus in his feeding, his miraculous feeding of the, of the masses. He fed 5,000 men plus women and children with, um, you know, with two fish and five loaves of bread. And we talked about the miracle of his provision, how he had exactly enough left over for the apostles to have basically 12 lunch, uh, a lunch pail each of food. And we talked about how God's uh, provision for us is always perfect. He provides exactly what we need uh, and watches over us, particularly as it pertains to our salvation. He gave us exactly uh, the salvation that we need. Of course, after he fed all these people, they wanted to make him a king. And we saw him slip away as they tried to corral him and, and you know, put a... Put a crown on his head and it's essentially so he slips away and the next time we see him after that the disciples have left and they've gone across they're, they're traveling across the sea in a boat and they're fighting the storm they're trying to get there and we see Jesus appear miraculously walking on the water of course the disciples thought he was a ghost but he comes and and we see his his his, his providence that he has even over nature that he's able to control and rule all things and so he walks across he gets in the boat they go to the other side of course the crowd comes looking for him they still sort of want to make him the king and Jesus um, calls them out for only following him because he had fed them because what he can do for them kind of in a uh, in a temporal sense but he told him that he alone is the true bread that's come from heaven and he told them that the will of God was that they would believe that he is the one that has been sent from heaven. That it wasn't about what he could do for them, but how they respond to him and respond to his miracles. And he told them, the will of God, you wonder what the will of God is. The will of God is that you would believe that I am the Messiah who's come to save you, who's come to bring redemption to you. He goes on to use the phrase, I am the bread of life. And anytime he kind of uses the phrase, I am, the Jewish leaders go crazy because they understand the connection that he's making there in that moment between that, what he's saying, and what Moses had said, where God had told Moses, I am who I am. And so the, the Jewish leaders understood that Jesus is continuing to ramp up in calling himself equal with God. He is the one who has come from God, and he's, he's telling them they should revere him as that, and it drives them crazy. They can't believe that he would claim to be the Messiah, to make himself equal with God. But he affirms, Jesus goes on and affirms that, yes, that it is impossible to understand this with human eyes alone, that we can only, we can truly only understand the truth about Jesus and have a true relationship with God if God himself draws us to himself and opens our eyes to this truth. Jesus then returns to the bread theme and he tells them that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, they cannot have eternal life. Of course, we see this, of course, from being further along in history and knowing that he's given us the signs of the Lord's Supper to represent his body and his blood. But the people in the crowd that day, when Jesus says these things, are confused, just as we can tend to get confused by those things as well. And we see that at the beginning of the passage that I'm about to read here, I'm going to start in verse 60 of John chapter 6. The mm -hmm. One of the first things we see is that the, the, many of the disciples heard it. These are people who have been following Jesus, and they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who could believe all this stuff? 
You're claiming to be the Messiah. Now you're telling us to eat your bread and drink your blood, eat your flesh and drink your blood. This is all hard. This is confusing. And not only that, the, the call that you're giving us, the thing that you're teaching us, they're starting to understand that he's telling them they've got to submit all their life to him. And they say, this is hard. Who can do this? Well, we're going to see today what Jesus, um, one of the things he has to say about that uh, this morning. So let's give great attention to the reading of the very word of God. It's holy, infallible, inerrant. It's authoritative. And God has given it to us that we would uh, know him rightly, know ourselves rightly, and walk rightly with him all the days of our lives. So let's give great attention uh, to the word of God. Starting in John chapter 6, verse 60. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said... This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by, my fa by the Father. After this, many of the, his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Would you help us to submit to your, your teaching here, your word for us? Help us submit to you, the God of all creation, to your son, the redeemer of all who believe, and to your spirit, the one who applies these truths to our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you work right now? Open our eyes and ears to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I think on some level we all want an easy life. Like maybe on every level we all want an easy life. We want to, in essence, have our cake and eat it too. But we don't even give much thought to the fact that the things that we're indulging in might upset us might upset our stomachs in the case of cake, keep us up all night. We, we see pleasure in the moment and pretend to run after that. Or we see, we feel an acute need and we tend to run after that. That's the case with this crowd that Jesus is talking to. They were hungry. Remember, they were traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. They came across Jesus. They were gathered in that field and he was able to feed them. And they, he was able to meet their practical needs. And so now they were chasing him down saying, that's what we need. We need someone in our lives who will just meet our needs as soon as we need them. We'll meet our needs. We'll meet our needs. We'll meet our needs. It becomes selfish. It becomes ultimately about just the temporal, about what's going on right around us. And Jesus in his teaching in John 6 has tried to force them out of that. Yes, I'm able to feed you. But more importantly than that, I'm able to save your souls. Not just deal with your body, but deal with all your being, not just for now, but for all of eternity. And so in the process of this, we're going through this. You know, we, you know, in our circles, we, we talk about the prosperity gospel at times and how it's uh, sort of a cancer in the world of sorts. But, oh, but on some level, all of us want the prosperity gospel to be true. We want a religion that promises health and peace and financial security and safety. 
and a few nice possessions and some vacations along the way, we'd, we'd take that as well, right? We, it's appealing to us. Essentially, we want Oprah to be our Messiah, or at least our priest, and to walk in the room and just start giving out stuff. A new car for you, a new vacation for you, for you, for you, for you, a new job, a new health, pristine health, financial security, for you, for you, for you, just giving, giving, giving with no need to get anything in return, with no expectations. We'll take that. Blessings with no, no expectations, with no cost to us. If we can't have that, we at least want a Joel Osteen to soothe our ears with promises that God can be manipulated into giving us what we want if we can just impress him with our goodness. Of course, we also naturally want a religion that tells us that we are the good ones. And it even gets better if we're the ones who get to define what good is. A religion where there's no talk of sin, no talk of the consequences of sin. Because that might make us sad, and no one wants any hint of sadness in our religion, especially if it's our religion. The problem with all of that is that it's not a picture of anything close to the reality described in the Bible. The scripture is honest about sin and its consequences. The wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are exempt from the hardship and from our need of salvation. But we also know that God has provided for our salvation, that God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave us exactly what we needed to save our souls. Jesus is also honest about what it means to have him as our king. The first century crowd, as we mentioned, wanted him to do miracles for them, provide food, heal their sicknesses, take care of their diseases, and those sorts of things. But they didn't really want him. They wanted what he could give. They certainly didn't want to submit their desires to him. They wanted an earthly king with just enough sovereignty to make their lives easy. But Jesus is an eternal king with unlimited sovereignty over everyone and everything. Being a Christian, according to the Bible, is willing and joyfully living under the rule of his sovereign reign. And when we fail to do that, that's called sin, right? But God in his goodness calls us and woos us and draws us to him. And he changes our heart that we would desire that. And so the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, I've told you before, is not morality. My pagan neighbor may spend way more hours at the soup kitchen than I do and doing other good things. But that doesn't mean that he is better off with God than I am. Maybe I should learn from him. But he also should learn from the scripture and from the truth that what saves us is not what we do but that we live in repentance and faith and so the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian if you look up and down your street the difference between the Christians and the non-Christians is not their level of morality although hopefully the Christians are getting better over time as God's spirit works out the gospel in our lives the difference is when we sin my pagan neighbor may quit because it affects him negatively you know, if he's cheating on his wife, he may stop because it's breaking down his marriage. But if, I've got, if a Christian has sin in their life, we should stop not because, just because of the effects on it, although that should be one reason we would stop. But ultimately we stop because our sin is displeasing to God and it's bad for us and the people around us. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is repentance and faith. The Christian's called to admit, I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. And I trust that Jesus is my Savior. 
And so the Christian is one that says, I want not just what Jesus can do for me, but I want Jesus. I want to walk with him and be in a relationship with him and be in a relationship with God through him. And submit joyfully and willfully to that. And, and hopefully God's grace and his gospel is working in us that our joy in doing that will increase over and over and multiply over and over as we go throughout life. But Jesus is making a point here that we all need to hear. That being a Christian is about discipleship and submission. It requires us to die to ourselves and follow Jesus wherever he calls us to go. Jesus didn't come to make our lives easy, but to give us joy as we walk with him through the trials of life. And this is hard for people to hear, especially people who think that God exists to serve them and meet their needs above all else. We have to be careful not to be too quick to point fingers at the people who don't get this, though, because the, the truth is that without God being merciful to us and opening our own eyes to our own selfishness and to the beauty of his grace and love, we would all think that submission to Christ is crazy. It doesn't make sense until he works on us. That's why in this passage, as these people are struggling with this, Jesus keeps coming back to the fact that you can't get this unless the Father draws you to himself, unless the Father saves you, redeems you. This is a supernatural work. And so we pray and we ask God work supernaturally in me, in my family, in my neighbors, and in my coworkers. We pray. And then we go and share the good news and say, come, find one who, is, who can redeem your souls. And so we do this because it isn't crazy to us anymore. Because God's opened our eyes to see who we are and to see who he is. What's clear in this, in this chapter of, of the Gospel of John here is Jesus didn't come to win a popularity contest. He could have let them make him king. He could have been in charge of everything in a temporal sense. But he doesn't need that. And that's not why he came. He came to give himself completely for us and for our salvation, as the Nicene Creed says. You know, we, we think that we can earn his favor by being his cheerleader or being near him or being near his people. But the insight that we get here about Judas in this in this passage we read, helps us see that just being near Jesus, even in the inner circle there, Jesus is, Judas is one of the twelve. It can't save us. You know, and, and what we know about Judas is that he was possibly the most outwardly trustworthy of all the apostles. When they got together and decided who's going to be our accountant and take care of our money, they chose Judas. He's the one that's got it together outwardly. He's the one who appears to be above reproach more than all the others, possibly. It seems that way. Uh, there, there must have been reasons to think that he was faithful and he was all in on this mission that they were on. But we learn here that Jesus, who knows the hearts of men, always knew that Judas wasn't a disciple. And it would be Judas who betrayed him and led, led his executioners to him. You know, we cannot be satisfied to have people think that we're a good Christian. To be satisfied with the fact that we're respected in the church and even in the community. And you know, we have to... We have to actually love Jesus and follow his will. Even when the path that he called us to embrace isn't filled with, with earthly satisfaction. We've got to trust that God is at work, even when it seems like he's not. You may have heard the story of Jim Elliott. Uh, he went to live in Ecuador in 1952 with a group of missionaries, a bunch of his friends and, and their families, hoping to reach the Harani tribe with the gospel. On January 8, 1956, Elliot and some of his team were attacked and killed on the beach. They had reached out to, to one of the 
members of the tribe there, and they thought that he had become their friend. They'd even given them rides in their airplane, and they trusted him, and they showed up that day thinking that some of the other tribe members had come, were going to come and, and take rides with them and start building a friendship with them. But when they got there, later on they found out that this guy had betrayed them, and he had told the tribe, these white guys are coming to kill you. And so they showed up ready for an attack on the beach and attacked the missionaries and left them, left Elliot and, and some of the others dead on the beach. In his journal before going to live in Ecuador, a couple of years before, Jim Elliot had wrote this. He wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's supernatural thinking. None of us think that way. Naturally, we always think. I'm number one, take care of me. What can I do that's going to help me, help me, build me, build me? And Elliot, who has seen the beauty of the gospel and now is risking his life, and they knew they were risking their life, to go into a, 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 you know, a jungle to preach the gospel. And he says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, and others from the team, um, didn't do what I would have do. I would have gotten on that little plane and scooted out of there and not ever come back, maybe. But God had called them there, and they actually stayed and kept reaching out to this tribe who had killed their husbands. Eventually seeing the tribe convert from cannibalism to, to Christianity. We can't always see what God is up to. And from my perspective, we're not always going to like what we see right before us we have to walk by faith and trust that God is good that he's holy and righteous and that he's at work in and through us in all circumstances this is impossible to see apart from the mercy and grace of God this hope that stays with us even in the face of death is what Peter is talking about here at the climax of this chapter when the crowds get impatient with Jesus and start to leave and, and Jesus asked the apostles if they want to leave as well. Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are who you say you are. We've seen it and now we believe it. These are words of faith. This is evidence that the grace of God has upended Peter's life. To... To stand and hear hard words that cause the world to run away. And yet Peter stands firm and declares that because of what he supernaturally understands, he recognizes there is nowhere else to go except with Jesus. Are we there? Is it true? If hardship were to come upon us, if suffering does come upon us, and all likelihood is coming in some fashion or form, what do we do in that moment? And when do we figure out that stuff? I remember Matt Chandler talking about when he got cancer. Uh, he had a brain tumor. Um, actually, I don't know. I guess it was benign, right? But anyway, he got this brain tumor, and he, he's suffering. He's going through all this stuff. He's going through all this radiation, going through all this treatment. And he says, why, am I, why was I able to stand in that moment and continue trusting God? He said, because I had settled lordship issues long before I got to that point of suffering in my life. I had already settled the fact that God was the Lord. He was sovereign. He was my king. And I was submitting to him. Whatever may come. He said, and so then when the hard came, I was able and ready to stand in that moment with God and not resisting him. I'm sure he had moments of resisting. But in general, he per persevered in faith. 
even in the midst of that. That doesn't happen in the moment of struggle. That happens now. What we believe, how we live, what we give ourselves to, so that when the storms of life come, we're able to withstand. So there's nowhere else to go except with Jesus. So Peter came to that point. That doesn't mean that Peter's life would be perfect from that point forward. Oh, I finally realized this. Now I can walk in holiness and righteousness. No, Peter ultimately denies that he's a follower of Jesus. We get that dramatic moment before there before the crucifixion where Peter denies Jesus three times. And then remember, Jesus had told him, when you deny me, and he's like, no, I would never do that, Jesus. He says, no, when you do, you're going to hear the rooster crow. And, of course, they're there. And, the, um, and we're told in the scripture that, that when the rooster crows, just like Jesus had predicted, Jesus turns and looks at Peter, and Peter goes off to cry. Think about that. Peter may be Jesus' closest earthly friend. We know that. You know, there were three that were kind of closer, even within the 12. And now here he is on, in Jesus' ultimate moment. Suffering is upon him. He's about to go through this greatest trial that he'll ever go through. And he looks across the courtyard, and his best friend in all the world has denied him three times. I don't know him. Why would you think I'm with him? I don't know him. I'm not one of his disciples. We find Jesus alone in that moment. And we find Peter crying. Guess what? Peter probably doesn't do much. Cry. Peter's the rock. The strong man. The man's man. Not that men's men can't cry, but we don't get that side of Peter much. Many have speculated about what was Jesus was thinking about in that moment when he turned and looked at Peter. And I think that look might have been more for Peter than for Jesus. So I think Jesus was looking and he's going, I know where you're at. I told you this was coming. You're not immune to this, Peter. We all need a Savior. And Jesus knows I'm about to go prove that I'm the Savior you need. Even Peter, the apostle of the apostles of sorts, needs a Savior. We see Peter being bombastic throughout the Gospels, making firm confessions like this one in John 6. This isn't the only place where Peter kind of takes a stand and says, No, Jesus, you're the one. And you know, Peter likely thinks how... You know, he is nothing like these people who keep walking away from Jesus. He's standing here in this moment, and these people are walking away. They're going, this is too hard. These truths are too hard. Jesus, your demands are too hard, and they're walking away. And Peter's got to be standing there going, these people are crazy. They don't, they don't understand. And he's standing, you know, Peter's the firm one. You know, we're all in a process of sanctification throughout our lives on earth. And, and Peter was no different. Peter was a sinner just like all of us. And I think what is happening in that moment is that Peter is embracing or being forced to embrace the reality of the truths of the gospel are, are in, in that moment where he denies Jesus, where Jesus looks at him. That's the moment I'm talking about. He's having to, to figure out and embrace in that moment the reality that the truths of the gospel are not just for all those other people out there but that he absolutely needs Jesus to be his Savior. How do we get to that point? Well, through the work of the Spirit. That's by submitting ourselves to his Lordship, by saying, I desire this, and asking continuously, how does that line up with what the Word says, with what Jesus has said, what God has said through his Word, and where we come to points where we're wanting to go this way and God's calling us this way, we've got to be able to say, I'm going with God, I'm going with Jesus, I'm going with the truth of the Scripture. That's hard. Because we see the temporal, the temporary joy that might come, the pleasures that might come from stepping away from the will of God. 
That's what we're doing every time we sin, right? We're choosing something else being better than God. We're going, well, I know God has said this, but man, this looks good in the moment. I'm going I'm to take this. Maybe just a little bite. Maybe just a little nibble. That won't kill me, right? The wages of sin is death. And so God's called us to walk with him away from our sin, away from our, our temptation to follow the things of the world above him. And there's a constant struggle there. And Peter's in the midst of that. It's easier in that moment to say, yeah, I don't, that guy you're about to kill, I don't know that I want to be a part of that right now. I don't think I want to identify with the one going through the suffering. The one that's about to be, the one that you're putting on trial and you're about to kill. But Jesus looks at him and, and in a sense calls him back, reminds him, I'm the Lord. I'm the one here. One of my favorite scenes in all of the Bible, I've told you this before, occurs in the last chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus uh, appears to some of his disciples after his resurrection. It doesn't seem to even be the first time that Peter's seen Jesus since the resurrection. But, but on this occasion, Peter is out fishing. So he's out just working. He and John and some others are out on the boat fishing. They're just doing what they do. And, and at this point, maybe they're even returning to that. Maybe they're, they're contemplating that. They're not sure. They've, been, they've kind of left their fishing business to follow Jesus. They're probably still involved with them on some level. But they're out on the boat fishing, part of the family business, you know, just going through their daily routines. They're fishing. And they come up to shore, and Jesus has walked up. As they approach shore, Jesus has come up on shore. And John whispers in Peter's ear. He says, I think that's Jesus over on the shore. And Peter, who is stripped for his fishing business, maybe essentially naked, or maybe absolutely naked, we don't know, he throws on a covering because he's respectful. And he dives in the water and swims towards Jesus. It says, here's what the, the um, I think it's Luke says, that Peter puts on his shirt and then throws himself into sea and swims to Jesus. The passion of Peter so often gets him in trouble. But here, we see him passionately, passionately doing whatever he can do to be with Jesus. Peter realizing that Jesus loves him, not, when, not just when he says and does all the right things, but even when he has failed him miserably. I think what's happening in that moment is Peter's realized Jesus just hasn't just come back to prove himself like he did in the upper room. See my, you know, see my wounds. Know that this is me. Jesus has come back to continue a relationship with him. That's why he shows up on the shore and starts cooking and starts welcoming them. He's building that relationship. He's telling them, yes, I know you have denied me, but I am here. I am with you and I am for you. I have paid for your sins and now I am still your Lord and your friend. And that's too much for Peter because Peter had to fear in the back of his mind that Jesus was done with him after that denial. What would Jesus really be like going forward? And in that moment, we see it. And Peter sees it. Whatever he sees with Jesus on that shore, he says, I've got to have that. And he throws on his shirt, and he died, throws himself into the sea and swims to shore to be with Jesus. My hope is that the most passionate moments of my life, all the moments that are filled with especially those moments that are filled with acute awareness of my brokenness, will always be moments that are driving me to, toward Jesus, to be with him. And I hope that's true for all of us, that we'll realize, even in the face of all the promises of ultimate satisfaction that this world may offer us, there's truly only one place to find peace and joy, and that's in the person of Jesus. My hope is that we would all say with Peter, 
Lord, to whom shall we go? Anytime we're tempted, anytime we're drawn away from our relationship with Christ, that we would look and think, wait, this is foolishness. Where else would I really go? Because Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. May we say with Peter, you have the words of eternal life. We have believed, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In Acts, we're told that there is no other name given under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ alone. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing that. In Christ alone, my hope is found. There is no other. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, we sang a few minutes ago. May that be the theme of our lives. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Would you help us to repent and believe, to run to you as our only hope in every situation, whether we're tempted by the pleasures of this life or, or drawn away from you because of the suffering of this life. God, would you help us to run to you in the face of all of those things in the mountains and the valleys. May we run to you, for you are our only hope. You have the words of eternal life, and there is no other. Thank you for being our God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.